1 Samuel 4, uh, 1b, I've said through to 7, we're going to go through to about 7, 5 actually. Now the problem is when you get a long text like this, if I were you sitting there, you, I imagine you can feel like three-year-olds feel like in a car when they take their first ever nine-hour car trip. So they're always used to the quick little shuffles around town and then, then all of a sudden it's Christmas and you take them on a big you know, nine-hour trip and for all they know, they're going to be there for the rest of their lives. So it can feel a bit like that when someone just says, oh, this week we're, listening, we're looking at 1 Samuel 4 through to 1 Samuel 7. Uh, but I'm only going to dip into this verse by verse. I'll look particularly closely at the first chapter, so chapter 4. It's generally, it's pretty much a story about the Ark of the Covenant. For those of you who remember the Raiders of the Lost Ark when you were a child, like I used to watch it, um, it's the same Ark pretty much. And it seems as though Israel nearly treats it as having similar magical qualities. But it's the loss of this Ark from Israel in chapter 4 to the Philistines, and then it returns to Israel by the end of this story or narrative. So I'm going to take a look at that. I'll look particularly closely at 1 Samuel 4, but then I want to touch on what was the Philistine response. And I'm interested in the Philistine response. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but as a person who studied Leviticus, that you get the Philistines making an offering of gold tumors, and let's just say in the Hebrew there's a chance they were hemorrhoids, and gold mice, and they make this offering to Yahweh, and it's accepted. Now, if it had happened to the Israelites, if they'd tried something like that on in Leviticus, they would have been burnt. And so I was always interested, what is happening with the Philistines making what seems like quite a heterodox offering at the end of this text? Now, there are at least three ways that we can... I don't want to be... Sometimes you look like a poser if you start talking, doing this with your glasses. I only need it if I'm reading, uh, you know, I don't. There are three ways that we can read this text as, as Christian scripture. I mean, we call it the Old Testament for a reason, because whether you like it or not, we read it as Christians. To say I'm reading it as the Hebrew Bible is in some sense to become a pretender if you also happen to be Christian. And it's worthwhile always asking before you preach on a text or even read an Old Testament text, then how are you reading that as Christian scripture? And I think there are basically three valid ways that I can, I can imagine, but there'd be others. The first is by presupposing God's sovereignty when reading it. And what I mean by that is to read it in such a way that if we presuppose God's sovereignty... It resonates with Matthew, what is it, 11.13, where it says the law and the prophets prophesied until John. You know, well, how did they do that? Well, it's because if God says, uh, I'm going to complete my creation through the people of Israel, say Genesis 12, and it just turns out Israel's a bunch of dirty dogs and can't do it and end up rebelling and they're off in exile, then that becomes a live prophecy because if the sovereign God says, I will complete this creation through Israel, it leads us to look for, well, where will this Israel come from? And then we see the perfect Israelite in the person of Jesus Christ and in him we're a new creation. So you can take that approach, so it's largely a theological approach. The second is we can use the nature of God disclosed in the Old Testament to inform the nature or what we find in Christ in the New and so in the narrative we're looking at here, you could say, well, there's an ark of a covenant that we'll see signified God's rule. We'll see that in a moment in, 
in 1 Samuel 4. And it helps us to look and understand what it means for God to rule in the New Testament in his son, the king, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Uh, in, that, in that sense, we're reading the Old Testament. It actually gives us a reason for why Jesus just doesn't turn up before there's any rebellion or before there's any suffering. We need to have some background to receive him on. It'd be like giving birth to an adolescent uh, who's, who's quite difficult to live with if you don't have that preliminary sort of 13, 14 years of loving this child, cuddling this child, and... Uh, uh, it can be difficult to take the smell and the, uh, the brusqueness and some of the, uh, some of the hits you even take as they get bigger. So, so in that sense, we're reading the Old Testament as informing our understanding then of the person of Christ to, to give us a background against which we receive him. But then the third way, and it's the way I'm going to use it, is that I could just presuppose that I am speaking to a bunch of Christians and then we can ask, well, what does this text say or how does it inform the life of faith? And I think that's how we can use the text we're looking at here, 1 Samuel 4 to 7. Because what I want to look at specifically, is what I think it's doing, is that it says something about the practice of faith that makes God known. Or you could say, in very theological language or the language of the Old Testament itself, the practice of faith that glorifies God. I think this is what this text is saying by bringing the practice of Israel and how it treats the ark alongside that of these, this outsider group, the Philistines, and how they treat the ark of the covenant. But just some context for those who haven't been here. We're in the fourth chapter of a book where so far we've learned that Israel is led by a corrupt priesthood. Unfortunately, um, we do live in a society where there are plenty of people who are visually impaired. We're dealing with a text that likes to characterise people who are spiritually blind by referring to their physical blindness. And Eli, we've learned, isn't so crash hot on the spiritual insight and it's shown to us or the way that it's represented is that he's going blind. Uh, that, that's there. So we've got an Israel that's being led by a spiritually blind priesthood that seems orthodox at the same time. So if you were to read the opening chapters of Samuel, I don't see anything that really contravenes what you have in Leviticus. You could say that they're earnest, they do their best to comply with the rules and regulations around worship, but we know that there's a spiritual blindness and that Israel didn't know God or didn't seem to have a great understanding of God and so in chapter 3, we meet Samuel. So Samuel is sent as a prophet who's going to speak God's words. But just as we meet Samuel and think he's going to be the big show in town, he disappears for these chapters. So he's just, just arrived on the scene, and now he's just going to disappear for chapters 4 to the start of chapter 7. I think there's a reason for that, and we'll get to that toward the end of the talk. What I'd like to do now is just quickly look at the faith of Israel as it's disclosed in verses 1 to 5. So we're going to start with 1 to 5, chapter 4. In those days, the Philistines, who will become Israel's arch enemies, arch enemies, mustered for war against Israel, and Israel went out to battle against them. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle was joined... 
Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. When the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has Yahweh put us to rout today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh. I'm saying Yahweh here, so I've translated where it's capitalised, uh, Lord, in your text in the NRSV, to Yahweh, because that'll be important for what, what, what we'll see with the Philistines a little later. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh here from Shiloh, so that he may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. Just notice how the narrator has drawn attention to what it symbolizes here. He is, this is where Yahweh is enthroned. He's the Lord of hosts, all these armies, okay? And presumably, this is how Israel is treating him. This is what they have in their hands, this ark. Um, The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, who in chapter 3 we hear are going to get it in the neck pretty soon, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. They were pretty happy to see this Ark because they saw it as their solution. So two things to notice about Israel here. First is the question of the elders. Why has Yahweh put us to rout? Is almost a Jobian-like question, a question of Job. It emerges from a certain belief. Uh, or what they think about Yahweh. He should have done this for Israel when we did this. It was just a rhetorical question. This, this doesn't make sense of my reality, what's happening here, because we know Yahweh should have put them to rout. Second, the report of Israel sending the ark into battle characterizes their practice of faith as possessive of Yahweh's power. They got their hands all over the thing. So you talk to a psychologist, they'll say one of the first signs that someone's trying to control you is they, they, they put their hand on you. And here we have Israel handling the ark of which we, we hear Yahweh is enthroned, Yahweh of the hosts of armies is enthroned and they're handling him. So from the narrator's perspective, he is a possessed God. So I'll be your God and you'll be my people. They've taken a certain perspective on that. He's our God, and he'll do as we please. Now, then we meet the Philistine perspective on this same ark in verse 6. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, and just watch closely, their understanding of Israel's God, or should we say God's. What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? When they learned that the ark of Yahweh, not their words, that's the narrator's words, okay? That's how the narrator is speaking of this ark. It's the ark of Yahweh had come to the camp. The Philistines were afraid for they said, plural, gods have come into the camp. They also said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, in order not to become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So a couple of things to notice. They're pretty sketchy on their understanding of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's God, so they're polytheistic. 
Yet they also know something. They know about Egypt. And so they fear this God already, these gods. And they've already thought they're cooked. So they're saying the best thing to do is make a fist of it. And so a battle takes place in verse 10. So the Philistines fought, Israel was defeated, and they fled, everyone to his home. There was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. So fulfilment of 1 Samuel 3, and the ark is captured. And there's an open question then about, well, what will the Philistines do with this? And we'll get, get to that in a moment on, on how they handle this. But it's the report of this outcome of losing the ark to Eli in verses uh, verses 12 to 22 that I think gets to the core of, of what the narrator sees as the problem with Israel's expression of faith. Okay, I think I think that's what we see. So let me paraphrase what happens and then read verses 16 to 18 of chapter of chapter 4. First, we've got Eli sitting there trembling. And he's not trembling for his sons. He doesn't seem to care much for his sons. He's accepted they're going to die in chapter 3. He's also sitting on a throne. That's going to be important as well. In the Hebrew, it's not just a seat. He's sitting on what the Hebrew term for a throne. We also learn that he can't see very well at all. Okay, So, So he's visually impaired. And he's worried for this ark, presumably because they possess this power and they need to know that it worked. They'd already been routed once and they're now looking to force the issue that the God they worship and serve will do as they darn well please, you see. So his interest is piqued when a Benjamite returns from the battle. He's hardly wearing any clothes. He's done it hard. He turns up and he reports in the city what's happened. He hears this. And and demands that the person comes and tells him what's happened. So verse 16, we pick it up. The man said to Eli, I have just come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. He said, how did it go, my son? Now, just look at how he unloads the information here to Eli. it's, uh, it's, It's like said for rhetorical effect. He just leaves the main thing till last. Um, You'd normally do this on a good story. Personally, if it's bad news, I like to get that out of the way first and then get on to the good stuff. But this guy takes a different approach. The messenger replied, Israel's fled before the Philistines and there's also been a great slaughter among the troops. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And then finally, oh, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and he's so off the side of the. Sorry, did I say this off? Sorry, Eli fell over backward from his throne. Right, so I just wanted to make sure that's clear again. Fell off his throne by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For he was an old man and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now, just just see what's happened here. What kills Eli? It's it's the loss not of his own sons. It's the loss of its possession, this God of Israel who's enthroned above the cherubim, right? He's lost that. But there's something else here that'll be important in a moment. When it says he's heavy, it's the word for glory. 
Okay, that's important. Kavod is the word because it'll rhyme with a name we're about to read. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. When she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her labour pains overwhelmed her. And she was about to die. As she was about to die, the women attending her said to her, Don't be afraid, for you've born a son. But she did not answer or give heed. She named the child Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed from Israel. The same name just used for Ehud's weight issue, right? Because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So it seems, one, in this picture of what happens in the aftermath of losing the ark, we learn quickly something about Israel's religious practice or the practice of faith is one that sees God as a possession. He's a possessed God, their possession, that they use to manipulate things their way. And it seems also, from this wordplay going on with glory, heaviness, he was a heavy man, and then the daughter saying, the heaviness has left Israel, is that Eli's leadership had been, and his practice of faith had been about glorifying himself. So just remember, he's not a heterodox priest in that he practices things, it seems, in a way... The narrator hasn't said anything yet to say that this guy is guilty of breaking the prescriptions one finds in Leviticus. It seems as though he's kosher in that regard. His problem is he was using it to glorify himself. This is a possible reading of this text. And it seems borne out then in the daughter's statement well, I'll name this kid Ichabod, the glory has departed, on account of the loss of the ark, but also Eli's priesthood. These two things are somehow wrapped up. What do we do now when we've lost this priest who practiced a faith that essentially the glory was about him? So in sum, the narrator despises, I think, Israel's practice of faith that may otherwise look completely orthodox and earnest, You may hear something of the Pharisees creeping in here, people who get a really bad sort of uh, uh, press in the New Testament, but no one could deny that they were earnest in what they tried to do, but always a negative portrayal. And here is a negative portrayal, someone who looked quite virtuous as one that was seeking to control God's power to achieve his own desires. So in a way... What I'm suggesting here, from the narrator's perspective, Israel is guilty of what you could call third commandment idolatry, which sounds like it's out of a textbook, and it is. But I like it, because what we're witnessing in Israel isn't a breaking of the first commandment. You know, you'll only have the Lord your God and no other gods before you. They haven't broken that. They haven't broken the second commandment because they haven't made a graven image But it seems they've broken the third commandment by using the Lord, their God's name, in vain, which isn't about swearing, which is always hard when I've had to tell the kids, well, technically, that verse isn't saying you don't say, oh, God. It's about using a name, hoping by using that deity's name, you'll get what you want. And that seems to be what the Israelites do with 
the Ark of the Covenant, you see. It's an idolatry because they've reduced him to someone they control. So I'd say that that's what we've got here. They haven't broken the first two commandments, but they've used God's name in vain. And it's a practice of faith that glorifies Israel itself. It's what we do. I think what I'm getting at is something we do when we become name droppers. Um, when you finally meet someone, I'm not a person who's met a lot of famous people, but I do know that temptation when you do to just drop the name, you know? You're going to drop that name. But you'd be so fearful of that person finding that you drop the name as though you're best buddies, only for them to run into that person one day and realise that's not exactly the relationship and actually the story they told you doesn't really reflect exactly what I meant when I was saying that. This is the problem that Israel's doing with God. I mean, it's their practice, is they've made God into something else. So what I thought, at this point of the talk, I thought this is a good point then to reflect and allow the text to critique our own practice of faith, what we do with our faith, to see if we're guilty of the the, uh, third commandment idolatry. And I was thinking of three things. You may be able to reflect on your own life of faith, and for those of you who are in ministry, uh, of your own leadership in, in that context. And I can think of three ways in which we can be guilty of the third commandment idolatry. The first is the use of orthodoxy to claim God's favour. And so what I mean is that we can claim that to be the true people of God is to hold these sets of beliefs or this set of knowledge about God. And it's an idolatrous expression of the faith because it reduces God to something knowable, something that can be captured and handled. You see what I mean? It it denies his unknowability and his mysteriousness and his unpredictability. And it's worth examining ourselves as to, are we guilty of this? Do we have an idolatrous practice when it comes to speaking about God and deciding who is in the people of God and who is out? Who comes under his favour and who doesn't on the basis of what they know and what they they say. This is very much, I mean, when you get a systemic failure uh, in, you get a systemic failure in how we relate to God, it ends up in a systematic, um, I guess, abuse of other people in that regard. The, the love your neighbour thing just goes out the window, doesn't it? So that's the first one. It's the, it's the, it's the use of orthodoxy to claim God's favour. We'll get to how we address these issues at the end of the talk after we deal with the golden hemorrhoids. Second, the second is to assume that God remains pleased with our own particular expression of worship. Now, you've probably heard people get terribly upset, worked up about the sacraments. And there's a sense in which we have to be very careful here that that we don't practice our faith in a way that says we're so concerned with the ritual expression of this that we almost presume that this will be the only expression that God will show his favour to, that he is the only expression of our faith that God finds pleasing. And again, it excludes others from the people of God. What about our emotions? What expression of emotion or faith uses emotion to somehow manipulate God when you feel as though if I'm in an auditorium of a thousand 
can get ourselves whipped up to a point where we're just going to will God into action. Again, reduces God to something of an idol. Uh, manipulates him. We think we can manipulate him with our emotions. Now, apart from the fact these practices misrepresent God and tend to push others down rather than express a love of neighbour and love of God, they raise that question that I suggested was in Job as well. If you practice your faith like this, what will happen to your faith when the God of bargains refuses to bargain and the God of, poss of possessive Christian faith, the God that we can say, well, I can, I can describe him and know him, refuses to be possessed. So it leaves you blowing out in the wind a little and, uh, and having to, to deal with, with the problems of suffering and so on, of when things don't go right. The elders of Israel, why didn't Yahweh rout, why did, they, why did he rout us? What I'd like to do, having, I hope, just tried to, to suggest that this text is, is critiquing an idolatrous practice of faith, which could be very near to all of us. Because let's just remember, the Israelites, it didn't stop with the Israelites. Um, a lot of the problems with humanity continue. We all have this tendency. I'd like to have a brief look at the Philistine response to receiving the, uh, the ark, because I think the narrator is using it to show up the Israelites and point us in a direction that Samuel will take up when he returns. So 1 Samuel 5.1, when the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and placed it beside Dagon. Dagon is their chief god, right? When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of Yahweh and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off upon the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not step on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So, so there's a little competition going on in sovereignty between the ark of the covenant and their chief god, and it seems as though they have observed that Yahweh's causing some problems for Dagon. The hand of the Lord, or Yahweh, was heavy upon the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and struck them with tumors, but they could be hemorrhoids, both in Ashdod and its territory. Now, what happens from here is they've observed what's happened with Dagon, all right? They're watching. And then the ark is moved around to, I think it's the five main cities of the Philistines. And in each place, they end up uh, crying out with hemorrhagic uh, pain. I don't know what we're going to call that. But, but <laughs> hemorrhagic, is it? Hemorrhagic, yeah. Um, on each occasion, they want to send this thing on. Uh, and if you recall, these people, remember we saw them before the battle? They're polytheistic. Yet they just knew something about the Egyptians. These gods of Israel had beaten the Egyptians. They've now met the ark face to face. They've fallen under its judgment, it seems. Uh, and then after they've experienced these horrible tumours, whatever they are, they finally speak to their own elders or priests and diviners in chapter 6, verse 1. 
The ark, of, the ark of Yahweh was in the country of the Philistines seven months. Then the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of Yahweh? Okay, now that's the first time. Way back in the beginning, they're calling him gods. Then they started calling him the ark of God singular. When they finally experienced what's happened with Dagon and finally had enough of these tumours, Somehow that corresponds with naming him in line with who he is, right? Yahweh, I am. Tell us what we should send with it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you'll be healed and will be ransomed. Will not his hand then turn from you? And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five gold tumors and five gold mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was upon all of you and upon your lords. So you must make images of your tumors. That was difficult if they were what we're talking about. And if, mirrors and all that sort of stuff. And images of your mice and ravage the land. And give glory, so glory, kavod, glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand on you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had made fools of them? Did they not let the people go and they departed? I suspect that the narrator is using the outsiders here, the Philistines, to show up Israel. Israel is idolatrous and he shows how these Philistines, by observing and questioning what was going on, from that little bit of information they had about the Egyptians, it leads them to ask more and more questions to realise, hey, this God deserves glory. His name's Yahweh. And we need to send him a guilt offering. And for an Israelite, a guilt offering is when you've really done something that requires a little bit extra. So they give him the tumours and the mice. And anywhere else for an Israelite to offer something like this, they're in trouble. But I suspect that this text here anticipates a theme that will carry on in Samuel that critiques true religion, or sorry, false religion. So you know when finally Saul tries to make an offering and Samuel says, sacrifices and offerings I do not desire and so on, and basically calls him an idolater. I'm after the heart, a heartfelt response. The, the outward appearance is nothing if it's not accompanied by an inward understanding and devotion. And I suspect that this is almost a comment on us to say, be very careful in judging one another on the, how we express uh, our love for God, whether in song, ritual, worship. What matters to God is the state of the heart. And this is how Samuel returns. And I'm going to finish with this and then one little quote. In 1 Samuel 7, 3, if you have a look there, Samuel's been off the scene and I think what's happened is it's prepared us for his return so that he can now speak into the life of Israel. So he says, Then Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to Yahweh, by the way, I should have filled you in, they've received the cows pulling the gold tumours and mice and they chopped the cows up and burnt them but they now have the ark back in their territory, so they're very happy. Then Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to Yahweh with all your heart, 
Then put away the foreign gods and the Astartes from among you. Direct your heart to Yahweh and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Um, It seems that Samuel comes along at the end and interprets the practice of their faith we've just seen, the use of the ark as idolatry. And he's saying if you want to flourish under the rule of Yahweh, you've got to stop breaking that third commandment. It's a return to Yahweh with your whole heart, with a sense of understanding and love. I think it's uh, interesting in finishing in a theological college context. If I'm right and God is using the outsiders here to critique um, Israel, those who are the true people of God, this idea, um, it's a useful model for us in a theological context. Possibly within this floor, the greatest sin will be the idolatry surrounded with knowledge, okay, that attaches to that, where we hold dearly onto certain pictures of God that we refuse to let go. I think a, a useful way of dealing with this, we're not using the Philistines so much, although we did just then, I guess, but it's again, sometimes those closest to us find it hardest to tell us and to warn us. Even when I have Christian friends, I think, take a view on something that I just think, you don't get it. I find it very difficult to tell them because I love them and I don't want to fracture a relationship or anything. So sometimes it's the outsiders who are most useful. And I've got this quote I want to finish with from a book by, written by Stephen Fowle and Gregory Jones. Without ears to hear the voices of outsiders, they say, they're talking about the spirit of interpretation, really, which gets to the core of it. I mean, that we, we mentioned the, uh, the Pharisees before, and that was all about the spirit of interpretation around the Sabbath. It, it, it ended up coming down to the vice they had in themselves about lifting up themselves in everybody's eyes was used to push everybody down. So what it looked virtuous, I think they call it as just a glossy vice. Without ears to hear the voices of outsiders, we can forget that now, quoting from 1 Corinthians 13, we know in part and we prophesy in part, now we see in a mirror dimly. Our interpretations can take on pretensions of permanence. When our communities fall prey to this greatest of interpretive temptations, it is often only the voices, voice of outsiders that can set us right. If we have not taken the time to cultivate the skills, habits and dispositions that allow us to hear the voices of outsiders, we'll fall into a situation of interpretive arrogance. That is, we'll deceive ourselves into thinking that our words are God's word. The exercise of power and coercion will characterise our communities. Conformity rather than faithfulness will be the standard used to judge our lives. If nothing else then our awareness of our own tendencies toward interpretive self-deception should compel us to learn to listen to outsiders. Can I just finish uh, this talk by praying from Psalm 139 and just three different verses? O Lord, you've searched me and known me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. 
See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. And I just pray that one because I suspect the danger that we face as Christians in our world from the non-Christian world at times is people will say faith is a crutch or faith is used to serve those people's own ends. And that's true. That does happen. Yet it will extend to our own life of faith. The temptation will always be before us. And there's a need for humility to listen here to outsiders. He'll say things like that. To sometimes draw attention to unhelpful ways of speaking about God or unhelpful ways of worshipping him so that we may reflect him and glorify him in a way that, that does make the world wonder and stand in awe of him.